everyone, welcome to the newest episode of What's the Crime with me, Gemma, the better sister <laughs> in every aspect. Okay, I'm not getting you to introduce it again if you're going to do that. And me, Kornia. Jealous, it doesn't look good. <laughs> okay, so for today's episode, um, this story took me a really long time to research and write. I just feel like there was so much information. There was so many, you know, people um, involved. So there's quite a lot of names and stuff in this okay. one. So if you do get lost or um, mixed up, just let me know and I will try and put you right. Guys, also just to let you know, this episode is quite graphic and it also discusses violence against a child. So it may not be suitable for everybody. It was a clear morning on August 29th, 2010, in the suburbs of Sydney. Emmett Hudson and his brother Dave powered down the Hume Highway in their car with their two dirt bikes in an attached trailer. So they were headed for Belangelo State Forest. They had both been motorbiking since they were children and Belangelo was one of Sydney's closest legal dirt bike riding spots. So I don't know if I said, but this is based in Australia, this case. Well, I presume so when you said the <laughs> suburbs of Sydney. <laughs> you, just, you know, geography might not be some people's strong point. So when they reached their destination, they get on their dirt bikes and started on the dirt trail on their bikes. <laughs> okay. So we get there on bikes. So they got on their dirt bikes, started on the dirt trail on their dirt bikes. I just realized how many times I said dirt bikes and dirt trail. So whilst Emmett was riding, he realized that no one was behind him. So he got off his bike to wait. It was there in front. He so spotted, can I say dirt bikes are scramblers? We would call them scramblers. Yeah. Because I was picturing like mountain bikes, but they're scramblers. Like Yeah, like yeah. motorbike type Living scramblers. Yeah. yeah. So... It was there in front. He spotted a clearing between a few trees. An unusual object on the dark forest floor caught his eye and it was a bone. A large one, about 40 to 50 centimetres. So he sort of calls for all the other riders to come over when they arrive. And they're all sort of examining this bone and then they notice another smaller one a few metres away. So they all kind of agree that the bones were most likely animal bones and go on their way. However, Dave couldn't really shake this feeling of uneasiness and he decided to go back to that spot and on further inspection, he spotted something else. How do you say, did he go back on his dirt bike? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so his mouth went dry and there on the ground, surrounded by twigs, was a human skull. They contacted the police who arrived at the scene. They cordoned off the area with blue and white checkered tape and declared the area a crime scene. So, I don't know if you remember, but do you remember Ivan Milat, the Australian backpack murderer? Yeah, I remember something about him. Yeah, so... Wasn't there a movie about him? Yeah, there, there was There was so much sort of about him, but Belangelo Forest was like his graveyard where he buried all his victims. So, the police sort of straight away kind of couldn't help but let their minds jump straight to him. Although that was 16 years prior because um, he had since been behind bars. So the police agreed that it looks suspicious, but they kind of had to keep an open mind. Like it could be anything. It could be foil play. It could be someone wandered away from a trail and got lost or, you know, some sort of accident or anything. Even though 
that happened, the discovery did attract a lot of media attention. And at 9pm that night, the New South Wales Police Media Unit issued a brief five paragraph statement about the bones. So the search in the forest lasted three days. During that time, the police made a number of significant discoveries. These included a crumpled t-shirt with a pink love heart and the word angelic printed across it, along with a small single white stock. Stock or sock? sock. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> so the bones were examined by a forensic pathologist and determined that the bones belonged to a female aged between 13 and 25 years old at the time of her death. Her body could have been on the forest floor for anywhere between six months and 10 years. So this time frame is obviously really broad, but it does rule out the involvement of Ivan Milek, the Australian backpack killer. For 15 years. He was in jail all that time, so it couldn't have been him. The pathologists form the opinion that death was caused by one or more applications of blunt force trauma to the trunk. It suggested the application of significant force, perhaps by forceful stomping or kneeing. So, so it was a murder. Yes, investigation. Yes, it was. It was a murder investigation. The remains were sent to the forensic and analytical science service to get them DNA tested. So, if if they got a match on the DNA, it could lead them to a name to identify this um, remains. But unfortunately, it gave them nothing. The bones did not belong to a criminal nor someone that had been reported missing. So it led to the question, you know, who was this woman? Why had no one reported her missing? With no leads, the police decided to release a drawn image of the white t-shirt that they had found at the scene with the word angelic sprawled across the front. So the release of this image left the press to nickname the woman Angel. However, even with this sort of release of this image, it still didn't lead them to any new leads. Unfortunately, 18 months later, the police were still no further ahead on the investigation. On the 2nd of December 2011, the police released another image to the media. This time it was a computerised sketch of what the Lady Angel would have looked like. So, with no matches against missing persons in Australia and no one coming forward to identify Angel as their relative, the police sort of began to theorise that she must have been from somewhere else. They sort of kind of waited for further developments and, you know, waiting for people to recognise the t-shirt and the sketch, but unfortunately, months turned into years and Angel's identity remained a mystery. Nobody came forward. Nobody came forward. So years passed. In winter, on the 4th of July 2015, which is five years later, a sharp wind whips around Winarka. So Winarka is a little small town in South Australia. There's not really much to it. It would sort of be very quiet, but there was a roaring um, highway, the Corinda Highway, right beside it, which um, took people to and from Adelaide. And there was, you know, a lot of motorists crossing the border in and out of Victoria to Adelaide. So that's kind of how it was kept busy. Three men on their way to Adelaide had pulled over on the side of the Corinda Highway just past Winarka to go to the toilet. So a few metres from the road, the driver's gaze drifted towards a tattered suitcase lying on the ground with its contents spewed out on the dirt. 
There was an old small pink jacket, a black ballerina skirt and a tiny pair of silk shorts. One of the men felt his pulse quicken when he spotted what looked like a small jawbone. Oh God. So like the men that found the remains in Belangelo all those years prior, they sort of convinced themselves that it was a mistake and again continued on their way to Adelaide. However, the decision sat uneasy with them and the next day they decided to contact the police to inform them of what they had seen. So soon this week, quiet stretch of road with a sweet town was teeming with police officers. Inside the faded suitcase, the police found a small human skeleton. Wrapped around the torso was a stained towel. There was a mat of long blonde hair and grey duct tape wrapped around the skull from the chin to just below the sockets. I know. When a forensic pathologist peeled back the tape, there was a blue and white dishcloth scrunched in a ball towards the back of the jaw. And so sad, it was clear from the size of the skeleton that the police were dealing with the remains of a child. So they reasoned that the cause of death could have been asphyxiation or the choking from the dishcloth that was you know shoved into the back of the jaw so the police work tirelessly starting from the ground up to identify this child they door knock every house in Monarca and you know the residents are just as shocked as the police the police sort of kind of, you know, release scarce information to the media. So they want to keep some of these specific details as tight as possible. You know, for example, the dishcloth and the duct tape. So that if there was a suspect that, you know, that they couldn't sort of yeah. say they heard it in the media or whatever. <clears throat> there was one quote that one of the detectives said that hinted at the horror that the child went through. Quote, it is terribly clear that the child died a violent death under terrible circumstances, unquote. So a forensic assessment determined that the child was a girl aged between 1.2 and 4.8 years. And the fact that no one had come forward suggesting that, you know, no no one knew this child was missing. There was someone out there that wanted to keep it that way. Children born in the 2005 to 2006 timeframe were cross-referenced against immunisation, schooling and welfare records, but to no avail. They couldn't, you know, there was just no record of this child. So there was one item of clothing in the suitcase that was quite unique. It was a carefully hand-stitched quilt. It contained pictures of animals, flowers and pumpkins. So the pattern was quite complex and would have required the skills of an experienced quilt maker. So over the course of the following two months, police returned to Winarka. They, you know, searched the roadside again. They stopped motorists and handed out posters. By early October, more than a thousand calls had been made to Crime Stoppers about the case. Then on the morning of the 6th of October, a woman who gave her name as Tanya Weber called and said it's a long shot but the girl in the suitcase could be Candelise Kira Pierce we haven't seen her in years her mum is Carly Jade Pierce Stevenson 
So Tanya explained that she recognized the clothing and the hand-stitched quilt. She emailed photographs to the detectives that she had of this little girl where the pink dress that she was wearing was the same as the one that they had discovered in the suitcase. The little girl in the photographs was about two years old and she had long blonde hair. So, you know, it's sort of a matching description, yeah. the hair, the, the clothes and stuff. However, detectives actually replied to Tanya and told her that the police had located Carly, which was um, who she had said was this child's mother, interstate. And, you know, she was like, everything's fine. They're fine. Yeah. Then he sent a follow-up email informing Tanya that that, that had been a mistake and that it had not been Carly at all, but a woman with a similar name. So... Tanya was an old friend of Carly's parents, Colleen and Scott. Scott had been married to Colleen, who was Carly's mother, but he was actually her stepfather. Okay. And Colleen had last heard from Carly when she transferred her money in 2011 to help her get home. So with this information, Scott... But she obviously didn't come home if that was the last time no, she heard of No, her. she never... She, that was the last time was when she asked for money, but never actually returned home. So on the 11th of October, um, Scott, who was Carly's stepfather, he emailed detectives a photograph of Candelise in a pram with a hand-stitched quilt that Scott's mother had made for her in 2007. So with the quilt in the photo and the one that they found being very similar, this little girl sort of became their strongest line of inquiry. Candelise. Yes. So police discovered that Candelise, who would have been nine by now, had been immunised when she was 18 months old, but had never been enrolled in a school. Instead, it seemed that from late 2008 that the little girl had disappeared. Police requested access to a record of her newborn screening test, which is like um, a pinprick test when the child is born to test for a range of diseases. So... The DNA profile found in the sample and the DNA from the bones found in the suitcase were indeed a match. After three months of searching, police had finally put a name and face to the missing girl. Scott, Carly's stepfather, was called and informed that the remains were in fact his step-grandchild, Candelises. He was, you know, understandably crippled with grief, but... He had to keep the information to himself because, you know, they didn't want the information to get out that they had identified this little girl. How hard would that be as well? The person responsible. You're already dealing with all this grief and then you have to, you can't tell anybody. And not only that, but the worry about Candelise, yeah. the worry about Carly, sorry, as well. Like, yeah. you know, if Candelise is dead, where is she? Yeah. So on the 15th of October, 2015, Five years since forensic biologists had extracted DNA from the bones found in Belangelo State Forest. So this is the guys in the dirt bike found these that, bones. That was these remains were found in Belangelo State Forest. That this was, you know, in two thousand and ten. By the dirt bike boys. Yes. Five years. That was five before. years prior. Yes. Can't so this is now. Found. So those remains were found in two thousand and ten. This is now two thousand and fifteen when um, 
Candelisa's remains were found. Okay. So one of the biologists, Cara Wilson, who had actually extracted the DNA those years prior from the bones found in Belangelo State Forest, she received a call from the Forensics Intelligence and Results Management Unit. They were sending her a DNA profile of a little girl that had been found in a suitcase in southern Australia. So the police had poured through missing persons and unidentified remains records, looking for cases of young women who would fit Carly's profile. So Carly was last seen in 2008, where she had met a friend in Adelaide in November before she went to Canberra for a while. So Canberra was less than a two hours drive to Belangelo State Forest and Carly's age range would fit within the approximate age range of Angel, who was found in Belangelo. Okay. So, you know, this request was kind of unbelievable. The bodies were found five years apart in different states and they kind of did not think in any way would these remains be connected. You know, the pathologists sort of remained sceptical. But the case of unidentified Angel had never left their minds and so they undertook the request. Almost immediately, Cara couldn't believe what she was seeing. After five years of delivering bad news about identifying Angel, she picked up the phone and contacted Firm and said, they are mother and daughter. Oh my God, so it is actually. So the body found in Belanglo five years prior to that, belonged to Carly Jade Pierce Stevenson. So, Carly was born on August 7th, 1988. She was Colleen's first child. So, Colleen left Carly's father when she was pregnant and moved from Adelaide to Alice Springs. There, she met a truck driver called Scott Povey. They were married in 1995. Carly was like a headstrong little girl and Scott was kind of the disciplinarian in the household and they argued quite a lot. And, you know, he was always scolding her and stuff, but they did love each other like father and daughter. As Carly entered her teenage years, she sort of became more rebellious and started getting into more trouble and skipping school. In year 10, she decided to move in with her grandmother, Connie. So Connie was kind of described as Carly's rock. Um, Another person whom she was close to was Tanya Weber. So remember the girl I said made the call to Crime So she actually started this this whole... Yes. She basically... And like I said, she was a friend of her parents. Mm -hmm. That's how she knew Carly. But then her and Carly also got quite close. At age 17, Carly discovered she was pregnant. So the pregnancy was a result of a casual hookup with a friend. And like, you know, he had no interest in becoming a father figure. But Carly was thrilled. She loved children. She loved babies. And in June 2006, Candelise was born. Carly had like a couple of short term relationships. But in late 2006, she met Robbie Frampton. They met through mutual friends and within a few months they had moved into an apartment of their own. Robbie loved Carly unconditionally and treated Candelise as if she were his own. In late 2007, Robbie, whilst working at a meat factory, met a man that introduced himself as Daniel Marshall and the two became friendly. 
Daniel had spent the last few months travelling around Australia in a caravan with his partner Hazel, his stepkids Willow and Ryan and his daughter Lauren. They had settled into Alice Springs to look for work. So Robbie, who was Carly's boyfriend, he started to take Carly and Candelise with him when he went to visit Daniel at his home. Candelise was about the same age as Lauren, the little daughter, and they played together in the backyard. So when Carly and Robbie's bathroom was being renovated, like, you know, they were good friends. Carly would run over to their house and shower and their afternoons were spent in the backyard, you know, when their daughters played together. Yeah. So what Carly and Robbie sort of started to come to realise was that Daniel and Hazel really liked to use recreational drugs. Hazel smoked some marijuana, but Daniel was kind of more into the hard stuff, ecstasy, speed. And in late 2008, Carly started to pick up their habits. Robbie said that he started to notice some signs of deceit. Like, for example, he came home from work unannounced one day and Daniel's truck was parked in their driveway. I know. And he also found messages in her phone from Daniel thanking her for, quote, a great time. And like, you know, obviously those things are pointing that she's having an affair, but he didn't want to lose her. Like he was crazy about her. So he just kind of kept silent and and denied the suspicion in his head. Oh my God, he must have been absolutely mad about it. I know. On the 16th of September, 2008, Robbie received an alarming text message from Daniel. He said that he needed to come to the hospital. And then when Robbie arrived, Daniel was inconsolable. He had been driving home from Adelaide in the middle of the night and lost control of the car. His two stepchildren, Willow and Ryan, were dead. Oh my God. Hazel had been airlifted to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and Lauren, like himself, had minor injuries. So reports sort of differed on who was at fault. Hazel claimed Daniel smashed the car into a tree after one of his endless nights out. And Daniel said that it was Hazel's fault that she sort of deliberately crashed as a she didn't want him to go on one of his drug runs, I assume. Um, But it was Daniel driving. Hazel's injuries were severe. She was placed in an induced coma for two weeks. She underwent surgery after surgery, but when an infection took hold of her leg, surgeons had to amputate her left leg just above the knee. So Daniel blamed himself for the death of the children and so did the police really because they were building a case against him because there was drugs and alcohol found in his system immediately after the crash. So at this point he knows he needs to get out of Alice Springs. He needs to escape because he's like, I'm going to get arrested for this. Yeah. Over the following weeks, Daniel travelled between Alice Springs and Adelaide to see Hazel in hospital and Robbie watched his drug use spiral out of control. So when Hazel awoke from her coma, she heard about what happened to her children and obviously she was absolutely distraught. You know, she really blamed Daniel, but also she was very dependent on him now because she lost her mobility and she was also very aware of that. He showed up to visit her one day and he brought Carly and Candelise with him and she was absolutely livid. She was like, why did he bring them here? And, you know, Carly was wearing like a little mini skirt and Hazel immediately felt very threatened. Like, you know, Hazel had just lost her leg. She was... I suppose feeling very jealous and she sort of thought something was going on. 
Around the same time, Robbie returned home from work one night to see that Carly had moved out of their apartment and left a note to say that their relationship was over. He was devastated. He really thought that she was going to just, you know, get over Daniel and and come back to him. And Carly's family were also very perplexed as to why she would leave Robbie. He was hardworking, you know, he was a decent fella and he really, really cared about her and Candelise. But she just said, look, I, I just don't love him anymore. They were also quite concerned about her appearance. So Carly's frame had always been slight, but now more than ever, she was very frail and gaunt. And they also noted a change in her behaviour. So they said that like one minute she would come home and she would bring them flowers. And then another day she wouldn't speak to anyone and was very moody so and agitated. they worried that she developed a drug habit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if her family were aware of Daniel's drug use, but they noticed that about her. Okay. And I'm sure that Robbie's worried about that as well. Yeah. So she comes home one day to introduce a man named Daniel to her family and they are immediately very uneasy. He avoided eye contact and he actually shouted at Candelise for running around. So Connie, like I said, was Carly's grandmother. She was very uneasy that the stranger came into her home and started shouting at her granddaughter, yeah. you know. And in November 2008, Carly announced to her family that she was taking a trip to Adelaide with Daniel. Colleen, who was Carly's mum, she didn't trust this man and she asked that Carly leave Candelise with them, but Carly refused. I think Carly, you know, would never leave Candelise on her own. She was very protective of her and wouldn't want her to go anywhere without Carly being there. Right. On December 13th, 2008, Colleen received a phone call from Carly. But then Christmas came and went without a call or even a text from Carly. And you know, Colleen was annoyed about this, but she's also quite unnerved, like a little bit uneasy. It wasn't like her daughter not to contact them over big family affairs. Yeah. Then just before New Year's, Robbie received a text from Carly. She said she was sleeping in her car in Adelaide with Candelise and had no place to stay. So he was concerned about her. So he sent her his parents' address in Adelaide. And sorry, how nice is he? Like she left him for another man and he's still helping her out. He's still helping her. And another time, another time she actually, um, well, he got a text from her that said she was broke and needed money to get home. And she sent bank details and he sent her money. Like he's so, you know, decent. obviously still cares about her. Mm -hmm. Um, Weeks passed and Carly still didn't come home. During the first half of 2009, Colleen had received a string of messages from Carly's phone asking for money and then the contact just dwindled to nothing. So on the 4th of September 2009, police opened a missing persons report for Carly at Colleen's request. On September 7th, 2009, the officer um, contacted Daniel, who was in Adelaide at the time, he said he hadn't seen Carly since earlier that year. So where was she? Nobody knows. Police also contacted the Australian Credit Union where she had a bank account. And on seeing that her account had been used regularly, they took this as a sign she was alive and well and in turn closed the missing persons report. 
obviously to the upset of her family. So they didn't even, they just saw that her account yes. was active and that's enough for them to be like, right, that's yeah. definitely her. Which is so wrong. Yeah. On the 6th of February, 2012, after four years of battling breast cancer, Colleen passed away. Oh no. That's Carly's mom. Yeah. She was 44 years old and died not knowing what had become of her daughter and granddaughter. She continuously asked for them during her final days. Oh and my I think God, that is heartbreaking. It was the last thing she ever said. <gasps> and Scott, Carly's stepfather, later recalls how angry he felt towards Carly that after all these years, she had only ever contacted her family and her mother to ask for money and didn't even have the decency to visit her on her deathbed. Then, in 2015, when Tanya was reading the news story about the child's bones found in Winarka, it was almost seven years since the mother and daughter had left. But Tanya thought of them often. On recognising the clothes and the quilt, she picked up the phone and contacted Crime Stoppers. And that was when, 12th of October, detectives from the Major Crimes Unit broke the news that the child was Candelise. Oh my God. The community response had been overwhelming. There was a national outpouring of grief for the heinous matter in which the mother and child had been killed and discarded. People who had never even met the girls mourned their loss. Strangers dedicated songs to them, sketched their faces into artwork, wrote poems, set up tribute pages online and reached out to family and friends to offer help in any way that they could. So... What the family were not aware of was that the man that they had been introduced to as Daniel Marshall was actually a man called Daniel Holdham. He was wanted for several drug offences. So not only that, but when they were receiving phone calls and messages from Carly asking them for money, it was actually Daniel and his accomplice Hazel. Oh no. And they extorted over $70,000 no, from the family, all the while Carly and Candelise were dead. So when you say um, phone calls and me- and messages, how did they, did they phone and pretend to be? So the messages were either from Daniel or both of them and the phone calls had been Hazel. And how did they, did they just think it was? I think there was, there was very few phone calls. And I think that um, one of the phone calls or some of the phone calls were like, you know, really sort of a bad line or it was really muffled, really muffled and low. So they just kind of took it for word that it was Carly. Oh, right. When the police tracked down Daniel Holdham, he was already in jail serving a short sentence for... The rape of a nine-year-old girl. Oh, my gosh. I know. Like, what? A short sentence? I know. How does that even get a short sentence? I honestly, it just begs belief. When he's questioned about the murders of Carly and Candelise, he denies any involvement. However, his story about when he last seen the two keeps changing. He states that he last had contact in late 2009, but then changes his story, saying that he hadn't heard from them since 2008. So then they tracked down his ex-girlfriend, Hazel, now ex-girlfriend, girlfriend at the time. She reveals something of significance to police. She reveals her knowledge about a photograph. She says she had seen a photograph of Carly lying on a forest floor 
with a glass bottle between her legs. What? I know. So she's seen this photograph and she assumed that Carly was asleep and accused Daniel of cheating on her again with Carly. She said she found bank cards that belonged to Carly in Daniel's car and again explosively accused him of seeing Carly behind her back. So he says... Carly is gone and she's not coming back. He then told her he had raped her with a bottle and then stomped on her windpipe. Jesus Christ. He then told Hazel, this is really, I'm like, he then told Hazel that he had raped Candelise, but she wouldn't stop crying. So he put a dishcloth in her mouth and she died accidentally during the attack. What a sick bastard. Mm. So Hazel said when Daniel informed her of this, she didn't really believe he had done those things. So she, she stayed with him after, like, this is not why like, they broke first up. First of all, right, she didn't, even if you didn't believe, like, what? If someone said that. Are you like, all right, you're an absolute weirdo. Weirdo. Like, even if you knew that it wasn't true and yes. you th- like you knew he was lying you'd be like right get away you're still who, even like, who would like even that? think something like that and say that and she admits to using Carly's ID to pretend to be her to extort benefit money but claimed she still didn't know she was dead oh, at this time police I know so the police straight away want to find this photograph that she was talking about and they think this is going to be a really sort of difficult task. They don't think they're going to find it. But sure enough, almost immediately they come across an SD card that Hazel had actually given to her sister. On this card were thousands of pornographic images. Lots of underage girls and children as young no, as that two. that actually makes me sick. I know. Like, I feel sick. One was a picture of Carly on what looked like a forest floor wearing an angelic t-shirt Her eyes were closed and she was propped up and there was a glass bottle between her legs. So the police believe that he had done what he said he'd done and had raped her with the bottle, then took this disgusting photograph and like kept it as a trophy. So even more damning proof, they discovered that his phone had pinged at a phone tower near Belangelo around the time of the murder. On the 15th of December 2008, he and Carly had left his cousin's house at about 2.30am, reaching Belangelo State Park at about 4.51am. Based on phone data, he stayed in the forest for approximately seven and a half hours. He then went back to his cousin's house, telling them that he had had a fight with Carly and left her at the bus stop. He then picked up Candelise from their house. I think they had left her there. Oh, my goodness. And he told them he was taking her to her grandparents' house. They had retraced his steps using activity from his mobile phone and bank statements and credit card statements. On the 19th of December, 2008, he had then taken Candelise to a motel on the way to Adelaide. So he was on his way um, from Canberra back to Adelaide, you know, going home to Hazel. He had stopped at a Woolworths to make a purchase. Amazingly, even after all these years, um, Woolworths were actually able to produce the receipt from seven years prior to show what he had purchased on that day. Oh the gosh. police were able to request it from head office or something. 
So on the receipt they found he had bought three Hercules bin bags, one roll of home handyman duct tape and a 10 pack of multi-purpose wipes among other things. So that receipt was sort of become one of the final nails in his coffin because there would be no credible defence for him buying the same silver duct tape that had been found wrapped around Candelisa's skull. At 11.05am, he then used his credit card to pay for a room at the Narandra Midtown Motor Inn on his way back toward Adelaide. The guest registration was handwritten and included the following details. Suite number 32, paid, adults 1, children 1. So this was the last record of of anywhere of Candelise being alive. At 2.06am on the 20th of December 2008, 24 hours after he'd left Canberra, he arrived at Hazel's house in Adelaide and Candelise was not with him. So, where did Hazel think? Oh, okay. Hazel Hazel hadn't been there yeah. when he'd left with Candelise. Yeah. After gathering all of this information, he was arrested. He was kept in solitude in prison, obviously because of the gravity of these crimes. He was going to be prone to other prisoner inmate violence yeah, two radios. I, I know it's terrible but I know it's not terrible for him but he was committed to stand trial on the 2nd of February 2018 for the murders of Carly and Candelise on the 30th of November 2018 at aged 44 Daniel was sentenced to life in prison Carly and Candelise's family were relieved with this sentence because anything less would have been an insult mm-hmm. Members of the public gallery applauded when the sentences were handed down. It's very sad because their family, Carly and Candelise's family, were just racked with guilt. They, you know, they thought of all the things that... Oh, they, and I just keep thinking of her poor mother. Her mother never even found out what happened. You know what? It's probably better. I was just thinking that. But that is absolutely heartbreaking. And you really, really feel for Scott because... You know the the, um, the stepfather because he had been so angry, yeah. and which what he thought that she just wasn't contact. You would have felt angry. You would have been so angry, and you would, like why isn't she contacting? Yeah. You know on her mother's deathbed. Yeah. So, on in a statement on behalf of the family, victim advocate Michael O'Connell said Holdham had forfeited his right to existence, and no sentence would ever bring closure. He murdered a young mother and her child. He stole their whole lives from them and from us. His brutality will haunt us forever. Nothing done to him will bring back Carly and Candelise or repay the toll on us. From now until he dies, young women and children must be protected. Their safety must be paramount. We do not want another family to suffer as we have. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of What's a Crime with Gronya and Gemma. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it was a hard listen, um, but we hope that you come back next week for a new episode of What's a Crime. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.